towards kind of something of the broader world other than than you know the delights of Australia where we've deliberately gone to raise our family and I happened to be working with someone who was talking about how his family had been to Cambodia and had worked with his charity and helping put up housing and I just suddenly latched onto the idea that this was a great chance to take the kids to developing country. Kate was horrified uh, but uh, but that's how we first got there purposely podcast speaking with social entrepreneurs and charity founders and leaders people who are making the world a better place here's your host mark longbottom Edward Shuttleworth, a really warm welcome to Purposely Podcast. Good to be here, Mark. Thank you for having me. Yeah, really good to connect. And uh, I thought we'd start by what is the vision and mission of Sea Beyond Borders? Okay, so so our vision is um, a generation of Cambodian schoolchildren empowered by education. And uh, our mission is to provide access to quality teaching and learning at school that's it and yeah fantastic and we know each other from the past we have i could say we've worked together um one of the statistics that jumped out at me as i was um doing the research of the podcast which 90 percent of teachers were murdered or killed during the Khmer Rouge regime um and you guys were responding to that one that was one of the things that had motivated you this huge vacuum of teachers yeah that's 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 exactly right um you know when we came to Cambodia the first time and maybe we'll get into that a bit more when really searching for uh how we could do something useful to help and I guess at that time really knew very little about the education system in Cambodia but Kate my wife's a teacher and um and we were asked by the organization that we started to work with to to do something about the quality of teaching and so gradually dug into that whole situation and went out to look at what was happening in schools and and even i as a non-teacher was pretty horrified at uh, at, at the level of knowledge and understanding that teachers actually had and were passing on to, to kids you know basic things like they didn't know how to do multiplication or they didn't know what a fraction was, you know, really, really basic, basic stuff. So um, that's how we, we, we understood that, you know, there just had, hadn't been any teachers in, in the country um, up until the 90s and gradually teacher training slowly started to get together. But, you know, it used to be that if you had done a grade four education, then, you know, you could teach up to grade three. And even wow. today, the adult in Cambodia um, has had, on average, only about four and a half years of education. So, you know, there's still a huge long way to go. Yeah. And so you were born in India, which I, I, I just found out. And but you um, spent your um, your sort of childhood uh, in England, did you or? Yeah, that, that's right. So, um, like, um, my dad was a tea planter, so kind of grew up with, I suppose, what was kind of normal to me in quite a privileged 
privileged life. You know, we lived on a house on a hill and um, and was surrounded by tea estates um, in in the middle of the countryside. Um, and um, you know, hugely privileged household. We had many people who uh, you know helped in one way or another, looked after the garden or or, or did the cooking or whatever it might be. And then I was sent to well, I was sent to boarding school in India for a while, and then then off to the UK um, to boarding school, and that's where I kind of lived for a long time before emigrating to Australia in the nineties. Yeah, worked in Hong Kong for a few years. Um, so yes, quite quite a few different countries involved, I suppose. Yeah, and how did you find yourself in Cambodia, and what was the sort of um, experience that um, motivated starting up CB on Borders? Well, I mean, I, I suppose I was um, like uh, the, the the third generation to be in in India. My my both my grandfathers were in India uh, with the with the British Army, actually. Um, you know, in the 1900s kind of kind of era, and um, then my father went back um, as as a tea planter, um, and and my mother, as as obviously um, once they were married, was was living there as well, and um, and so all three of us. I'm going to say all three of our kids were were born there. Um, so I was just you know that that. that was very formative part of my life. And as we had children, I really wanted them to be able to experience kind of something of the broader world other than, than you know, the delights of Australia where we deliberately gone to raise our family. And I happened to be working with someone who was talking about how his family had been to Cambodia and had worked with this charity and helping put up housing. And I just suddenly latched onto the idea that this was a great chance to take the kids to developing country. Kate was horrified, uh, but uh, but that's how we first got there. And straight to Cambodia, or you tried Southeast Asia just generally traveling around? Um, no, I mean, we'd done a bit of traveling um, between Australia and uh, the UK um, before children and things like that. So um, and I'd spent time in India and various other countries to, you know, backpacking as as many people fortunate enough to do. So yeah, no, we 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 just it was two weeks standard holiday and um, and off we went to Cambodia. And this was in 2002. And so, you know, the, the last Australians to be killed in the Khmer Rouge period was still 1998. That was when actually Pol Pot died. So, you know, the country really hadn't opened up to tourism in a really big way by then a massive difference between 2002 and today of course um mm. in the country. yeah yeah because i i sort of in that part i was in thailand um intrigued wanted to go to cambodia but it just this is sort of late 90s and, and wasn't a possibility and yeah. was there a was there a like particular experience that you know because it is one one thing visiting country but you know a couple of decades later you or a decade later you're still very much um, part of C Cambodia's um, fight for better education. What, was there a, a, a particular day that you thought, I, we can't turn our back on this and experience? We need to yeah. do something? Yeah, definitely. I mean, we'd gone to kind of um, work with this charity work, have an experience with, with this charity, I suppose, uh, uh, in Cambodia that 
you know, I've been introduced to by this guy I've been working in Australia with, and um, and, and we we turned up. It was was probably I wish I'd had some photographs. You know, we were all wearing the kind of same same long trousers and and uh, and long sleeve t-shirts because we've been warned about the danger of mosquitoes and catching malaria and all of those kind of things. All the stuff we'd bought in Paddy's Market in Sydney, and. Um, you know, people thought we were missionaries as we were getting off the plane because they were the kind of probably the largest form of visitor that they were getting. And we went down to work um, uh, in, in, in Seanookville, which is uh, on the coast, um, and were taken by the charity to a particular community um, where we were helping with putting up some, some very rudimentary housing for the people. And um, yeah, that was that's just in a kind of semi-tidal area where um you know all the rubbish from the port was being washed into this sort of like semi-grassland area where there were a few kind of barbed wire fences dividing up different plots and all the rubbish had got caught in the barbed wire uh fences the ground was all boggy and um it was an area that communities had come to settle to prostitute their kids to the people in the port, basically. So there were, were children the same age as ours. I mean, ours ranged between seven and 12 at, at the time, three of them. Um, and they, these kids were similar sort of age. And I mean, wow. mm. difficult. And, and uh, there they were with lipstick and uh, various kind of bits of makeup on in this, you know, extraordinarily basic living and just that juxtaposition between the privilege of our kids and 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 these kids and and their families you know kind of you know heart went out to the families that think that obviously as parents you know you, you you'd never dream of doing that with your own children but the fact that they they had been reduced to that being the only way to to sort of preserve their family um yeah i just kind of that that image of that place will kind of stay with us forever even though that's nearly 20 years ago now um yeah mm. I, I, and it wasn't it, education wasn't the immediate thing it was just you know just can't leave this this can't just can't leave this alone you've got to try to do to do something even if it's only a, a small contribution because this just isn't right on any level i suppose yeah that's yeah and so education came into play partially because your wife was a teacher but also because that's the way you could see you could make the most difference over a long a sustained period of time yeah look it, it was you know it took us six years from that point i mean I, I i was still quite a regular visitor with this other charity to cambodia in the in the intervening time and talked to them a lot about you know okay it's great coming here and consuming jet fuel between Australia and Cambodia but but what can we really do that's more meaningful I mean we weren't, weren't wealthy it wasn't as if we could give give them a pile of cash or anything like that but what could we really do and um, so I then started um, to work with uh, with a with a, a local religious organization um, that were there that were linked to where our son was at school and um, and, and asked asked them as well and they were the ones that took us out to visit um, some of the schools and with Kate being a teacher 
and they kind of said, look, you know, what, what can you do about this? And that's when we said, well, look, perhaps in the first instance, if you can organize for the teachers to come together, we can bring a group of teachers from Australia and teach some of the basics of, um, well, of maths is where we started because obviously we didn't know the language. So, and maths and, and literacy were the kind of the, the staples of the curriculum. There wasn't really much else in the Cambodian curriculum, but at least we could felt that we could do something for their maths teaching. So that's, yeah, that's how that, that's the very beginning of how that happened. And they brought together like a hundred teachers in two different locations. And we did two groups of four and a half days of workshops with the teachers in those, in those places. Mm. And were there NGOs operating in the area? So there clearly was the one that you'd connected with, but you saw a kind of gap in the market or you could see where you could um, make a difference? Yeah, look, um, there were, uh, we connected with a couple of NGOs. Um, the Belgian government had a, had a pretty big um, education program um, aimed at, uh, you know, at primary, I mean, obviously education is a very big subject in itself and, and Kate's experience was, um, was primary. So we aimed at early primary in terms of getting children off to a, a good start. Um, and there were a couple of organizations sort of working in that area. And, and we, um, in the early days, spent a lot of time with them learning from the Belgians who were actually pulling out. They, this all, the first workshops were in 2009 and by 2011, the Belgians were gone, but they, they offered um, a, a lot of help to other NGOs who were interested in learning from their experience. And we were one of two, only two NGOs that went, um, we, were, we were tiny at that stage, went and, and learned everything we could from them. Um, the other organization was um, BSO, you know, they had a, a, a handful of um, experts from other, in, uh, other developed countries working with, um, working with provincial areas of, uh, of education, provincial offices of education, and, and they gave us guidance about how to teach in schools, and, and they had been doing some teaching in schools, but yeah, there was really very little focusing on quality of education. And lots of people were, were trying to help with build schools or there were a few NGOs running their own schools kind of thing. But to support the government in the education of teachers, there wasn't much, much there. I mean, there's probably a third NGO that was working at that time, um, mm. VVFB, also from Belgium, helping with teacher education. But they were working in the um, technical, in the teacher training colleges. So... Yeah, that was definitely really not much, not much help in that area when we started. Because teaching the teachers, you know, a sustainable way of doing it, right? If you, if you, um, you know, you can head a lot more kids over many more years. What, what um, jumped out at me actually is 2009 was, um, you know, financial crisis. And uh, it's quite a, quite a difficult time to launch a charity. Um, but you've always been pretty good at engaging donors and, and funding. Um, Tell us a bit about that. And then also, did you envisage yourself uh, as a founder of a, and, and CEO of a charity? Like, did you think that was your calling? Um, no, no, like I'll, I'll take that second bit of it first. And not at all. I mean, we haven't set out to kind of establish a charity. You know, 
as I mentioned, we were just looking for a way in which we could do something useful and, and helpful. And uh, um, initially, you know, I tried to get a job with the charity that we had been we'd been visiting Cambodia with in the first place, and, and they basically wouldn't have me, which is probably a good decision. Um, so, you know, it was all about how do we engage other people, other Westerners, to really support and help with technical expertise, et cetera, in, in this country. So it wasn't about setting up a charity, and it was really only, um, you know, it was even only in about 2000 and. 10 2011 that we recruited our first member of staff and decided that you know we actually needed a platform of our own in in country if we were going to be able to, to do anything useful but um but i did have some help from from one particular person who happened to be a parent at the same school as where our daughter was and our daughters played basketball together and and he just sold his business luckily just before the financial crash as you said and he said, look, you know, I'd, I'd really like to do something useful. And you've always talked about Cambodia. You know, would you actually do something if I helped you with the foundational costs of the organization? And I haven't really, you know, my background sounds ridiculous now. My background was, uh, you know, I trained as an accountant originally. So you would have thought I'd have some understanding about income and expenditure. And I always assumed that if we were doing something really good and we could communicate it well, the money would come. I hadn't realized just how how hard it is to to raise money for a for a particular cause. So that 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 mm. has that been the hardest? Has that remained the hardest piece? Um, look, it's it's definitely the piece I'm I'm worst at. That's that's for sure. Um, I think that that you can't really separate the fact that actually to make a difference that matters and is sustainable is much, much more difficult than it looks. Um, so I have tended to concentrate myself in a sense on that, that area. And I've tried to find people um, who are actually much better at the communication and fundraising side than, than I am. Um, and, um, you know, have over the last well, I mean, relatively recently, you know, we're, we're slowly building building a good team in that in that area. Um, but yeah, look, for, to, to talk about fundraising, and you know, you were very gracious when we worked together uh, in those days um, um, in the previous life for you. Um, but finding people who are good at that, and and I think I mentioned to you before, you know, this gap between how you talk with a donor and then how you talk with a, a, a beneficiary is just is just a, a, a vast gulf um, uh, of understanding of life experiences of, uh, of, of, of future hopes and dreams and it, it's I found it very difficult to be in both places uh, at the same time in a sense mm, yeah okay and uh, there's a lot of issues around timing um, mutual dreams um or hopes i yeah. was going to focus a bit on cambodia and the cambodian people um so we talked a bit about relatively recently being, being under pol pot's regime um you know communist regime what what's your view on um people of cambodia and and what is that kind of trauma of that how has that played out in their psychology and their culture? Like, 
what's your view from having lived there and still working there and yeah um that's um that that's that's a very interesting question i to just jump back to what you're saying before i guess from a fundraising point of view i just did want to play down a marker that we decided from a really early day that we'd go for the professional funding provider the, the so governments and and other and trusted foundations those sorts of things because because we really wanted to get to the bottom of what was going wrong and why the more we looked at charities and how charities work the more uncomfortable we were about that side of thing especially kind of in cambodia where you know every tuk-tuk driver tells you a, a a sad story about his family and and in many cases you know gets support from this casual visitor for a, a couple of of weeks but so so we wanted mm. to you know, have a professionalized kind of, in a sense, organization to 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 access uh, the the money from from those who really have a better grasp of what's necessary, and not but, fall into the traps of um, you know other charities have done in international development, I guess, um, and uh, you know, and a, a bit of that is around delivering what the community asks for and needs, not what your viewers from um, your foreign view particularly um yeah. and i think that's all part of it isn't it but yeah no fascinated to um understand a bit more about your view on the, the country and the people I, I think that um you know if you look at cambodian history like way back um people have been oppressed from the angorian days if you go to cambodia and have a look at the temples you know they're they're magnificent structures and uh, and and everybody's in awe of them. But when you think a bit more deeply about well, how did these things get built and how did people live? It was kind of industrialized slavery, really. Um, the kings, you know, had this uh, hugely elevated position in the community and exclusive rights to all sorts of things but you know the average man spent his life you know hauling blocks of stone from some quarry somewhere to put up the latest um you, you know vanity symbol to the latest king or or fighting in the wars for them and or or um i guess some people were fortunate enough at least at least to be producing the rice to make the whole country turn and i think that you know when you think about them through the the, the period of um, Cambodia where it is, the wars between Thailand and, and the Cham people, you know, who were in Vietnam on either side and the Chinese from the north, you constantly um, under threat. Uh, and I think that that's so much embedded in the psyche of the Khmers even today. If you then go through the history of the French hundred year occupation and then obviously the trauma of the Khmer Rouge, Mm. it's a lot of what drives them is this sense of is a sense of fear really um it's it's still very much in the psyche now but you've you've also got other factors of um you you know you've got sort of hardened in a furnace this this interior of the cambodian mindset of the of of of, of survival in a sense and and the people talk about about ethnocentrism in Thailand, which is 
had quite a lot of research around it. This ultimate belief that belief, fervent belief in their own culture beyond anything else. And if anybody questions anything about that, that goes sort of beneath the surface, then there's this assumption that, well, they don't understand, so, so they're wrong. And you can see how that comes about through this history of complete oppression of a, of a people um, to manifest itself today in some kind of, kind of strange ways. So helping this people to move on from an education point of view, um, from anything that, that we've achieved in a, in a Western sense and through particularly around um, problem solving abilities, um, um, being able to extrapolate ideas and things like that is, is not a natural thing in, in a Cambodian society, perhaps. And that's, you, yeah, you say that's linked to the oppression um, and not being given the opportunity to, to think or they, do they, are they typically um, happy to be open or as, as part of the hangover, the oppression is that people don't necessarily say what they feel or think no I mean, stereoty stereotyping yeah yeah I, I, again um i'll probably be castigated by many people who know the country you much better than i do but but in very simplest terms you know even like if you think about babies in the country you know we we typically will allow our babies to, to crawl over the floor and and experience all different kind of sensations in one way or other cambodian baby kind of is is basically kind of rats in a cloth. Um, obviously they can't crawl all over the floor. That's far too dangerous from lots of different, different ways. So they're wrapped in a cloth or, or put, in a, um, put in a hammock until you know, they're almost two years old. So they just miss out from that whole experiential development stage. Um, and then the whole process in school is the whole sort of chalk and talk and and learning of rules and learning of that you know they their ability to memorize stuff is quite extraordinary you know i'm sure if i walked into a cafe now two years uh since my previous visit they'd know exactly what how i like my coffee for instance mm. um so so that's that's where the the skill is rather than rather than the problem solving skills i suppose um yeah. Uh, and that's 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 something that's that's innate in in the culture and innate in the education system and and even how how children are brought up. And do you do you speak the language? Is it a country that's and a culture that's got under your skin? <laughs> um, yes, I mean, I, you know, Cambodia's. Although I kind of lived there for probably eight eight months of the year for for six or seven years now. Um, I, I still don't really feel that it's like it's it, it's it's not home, you know. It's not my adopted country. It's where I where I work, and and um, and so it, it's the 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 culture, the language. I mean, I, I speak I speak some Khmer. Uh, it's it's far from fluent, um, uh, but it's it's enough to get me get me by. I, I've completely lost in a deep professional discussion around uh, around how to teach um, but it is very interesting language in itself you know uh, as we got into teaching literacy um, and Kate has been developing you know lesson plans etc to to help with literacy um, she's always 
been intrigued by the such by the fact that that there's a very limited vocabulary to describe emotions for example you know things are either either good or bad and to try to introduce different forms of smiley faces to the kids to get them to consider what those might be mean you know the, the teachers have kind of no no idea uh what she's on about or what she so that was a very interesting learning experience mm. um so i'm i'm i've been really fascinated because I, I feel a huge kind of moral sense of of duty to all the people who've given us money and supported us in what we're doing to actually try to spend their money in the best possible way and so it's been like a massive problem to try to to unravel to look at how best to do that if that makes sense yeah and as a family you've it looks like you've divided your time between cambodia australia europe or the uk yeah like uh you know we're not we're not um often the kids uh who are all obviously all grown up now uh, are um sometimes it's, ask us you know what on earth are we doing i think that they they think of us as kind of globe trotting hippies sometimes um which is which is i think far from the truth but but now we're left with two children in australia and one in the uk uh so kind of the it's it i'm really happy for them and they're all i'm obviously we're all incredibly proud of of what they're doing and what they've achieved but it it means it, it's it's tough for us we're never in the right place at the right yeah. time we yeah. missed so many of those kind of key events for yeah. for family that's that's been yeah. yeah adds complications doesn't it um and so you are in uh france and um and that's a lot to do with covid19 and just tell me a bit about the effects that on you guys as a family but also on the charity and the work that you're doing yeah, look, it's, um, the time difference is hard and kind of, you know, even the biorhythms in a sense is hard. Um, I, I, I'm on Zoom with the guys there or, or, or some, some screen-based communication thing um, with Cambodia, like all morning, every morning, pretty much. Um, and there's, there's obviously a limit to what I can do from here. Um, uh, Kate a bit less so she's still been helping out with the program development uh, area of work um, but uh, I, I guess you know, not being there has been been a bit detrimental to to the kind of level of involvement that I have um, and it's it's really all about trying to empower people locally and encourage them and discuss with them what their problems are just before COVID hit, we went through quite a radical change in the in the direction of our programs. You know, we had been focusing on um, training teachers and training teachers in in maths, and um, and then we'd started to develop the the literacy program um, and and looking at new ways to encourage teachers to 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 teach literacy, um, but sort of just in 2018-19 um, GPE the Global Partnership of Education starts to fund teacher training programs um, and and the Ministry of Education came up with their own training programs for early grade maths so naturally we didn't want to 
kind of continue our work and confuse people between different approaches and while we helped with producing some of the materials in that direction we concentrated on other aspects of our work particularly on the mentoring and the mentoring aspects of the work which is what we yes, want to for um and then how do we embed that um in the system and um and then we introduced you know educational technology solutions for teachers um, we now have a program to develop um to develop young people to become educational leaders um, women actually focusing on women so kind of looking at ways to better leverage the experience that we have to wider groups of people um if that makes any sense and and provide kind of that core training to to people to help them help them with a way in which they think about things help them to think um less linearly about uh, about everything and uh, and uh, to sort of assemble evidence and build conceptual understanding um that that kind of thing and reflect that in their teaching so mm so it's 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 possible at some level to be you know talking about that that stuff from here to be um to be helping with documentation etc but but the informal communications so important uh when one's doing this kind of work and you know obviously I haven't been able to get out of school or talk to any of the community in all this time and i i really miss that yeah i yeah. i miss that checking in on you know is this helpful are we doing anything useful um that side of that side of the work yeah i think <laughs> reflecting on what we talked about earlier about fundraising but fundraising in a pandemic and fundraising you know via zoom um and actually through that whole kind of first six months of the of covid-19 last year um to be so asking donors for money um when there's so much uncertainty it's all it's all tough stuff um but but uh, great to see that you guys um if, you know seem to thrive through that or you certainly survived that um and one thing i looked when i looked at your sort of makeup of your team now so you've got you know you've got teams in cambodia um australia uh europe or or sort of ireland um and people in mixed roles but your leadership team in cambodia looks um well developed from you know over the last 10 years you've got quite a strong team in country which is looks good yeah we um look as covid hit and we we recognized that um you particularly corporate support etc was was going to be significantly down we estimated that our fundraising would drop by by you know 35 to 40% that's that's the sort of we that we 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 reckoned we and we did kind of think that maybe it would be a two year process we think that it's probably going to be longer than that now um so we did we went through a, a process of of actually having to make about 30% of our staff redundant um and that was really painful process and uh, um especially when we were you know looking at at, at and also a step change in what we were doing and everything had been going kind of up for 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 quite a few years and we were you know towards the end of 2019 we were you know really um 
on top of it all and and it was it just seemed to be going really well and then of course we get into covid and 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 i'm not in the country and having to make these really tough decisions about where to make the budget cuts etc and then where to focus the programming etc and and of course now just recently um i mean last last year um the, the kids lost 100 days of school in 2020 and schools are now closed again with this latest outbreak um, which is the worst the country has suffered of, from covid and so you know it's far from over the chances are that the country you know they're doing they're doing quite well on the vaccines but they're entirely reliant on on china for the for the for their vaccines mm. um, at the moment and um you know when they come in they've prioritized education you know a good chunk like 90 odd percent of teachers uh, have 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 had their vaccines which is which is amazing so yeah that's good operations of the country they recognize how important the sort of the soft resources are going to be if they're going to improve so yeah. we're hoping that schools will go back you know the second half of the year in in some shape or form or at least learning will happen in some shape or form. So a lot of focus on, well, how do we, how do we reorientate what we're doing to be able to cope with more small group learning rather than, you know, the traditional, like 40 kids in a class, which of course has got its problems of its own. Um, so yeah, that's, that's, I suppose, been, been, been really the focus just, just recently. Mm. And when you're not leading a charity, and doing the work you do how do you spend your time what what uh, gets you out of bed in the morning <laughs> apart from work yeah i'm i mean uh, we live this this house is in an absolutely stunning part of france and um you, you know i think both of us really enjoy uh enjoy the just the countryside really i mean we've got even though with our house in the village you know very old-fashioned style we've got a patch of garden on the edge of the village and we're we're trying to grow our own vegetables for the first time ever which which is interesting in itself and solving the whole problem about how do we get water to our garden um has been one thing but but uh, i i love to cycle and um there's just you know every form of of cycling here i'm quite new to the whole road bike kind of idea of cycling and, and if I can get out um, on my bike and get in some kilometers that's you know that's that's a real privilege that's actually good, yeah um, well you're in the right country and I I, I know that um, their drivers treat right um, bike riders with more respect than, than other countries <laughs> yeah. yeah they're a bit, fam bit famous for a bike ride aren't they These, they've got a bit of history in that front, on that front <laughs> Um, oh, exactly the, and the tour de france goes you know has gone not far away from where we are so you know on a couple of occasions we've been able to go and and watch the whole spectacle i mean the the the, the, the bicyclists are sort of one they're in a flash they've gone past you but it's all the rest of it and the crowd there and stuff so yeah um for, yeah. i know I, I i love for it as well um and so as we move towards wrapping up and looking to the future um does do you want to be uh running a charity in say five years ten years or do you want to have handed over and, and there's a succession plan because you're co-founder with your wife kate and um what is the vision for the future 
or is it too early to say? Well, no, I, I mean, I think it's it's completely fair to say. And uh, obviously, we've been giving that a, a lot of thought. Um, you know, as I said to you before, Cambodia is the place that we worked. Um, it's not it's not a place where we intend to set up a long term home. And that's that, you know, our family, our culture is 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 not in Cambodia. And, and we've worked hard to try to empower people locally in Cambodia but ultimately the problem of education in Cambodia is a is a problem for for Cambodians um and we can we can only support them and you know I hope that to be I hope we'll be able to continue to do that for a long time but but my own role uh, and Kate's role has to change um you know I'll be I'll be 65 next year and um so we're looking at uh, restructuring the organization, um, you know, being more explicit about the Cambodian leadership team, looking at more explicitly at how we've got support teams in, in other countries. Um, and yes, Ireland and the UK and Europe, I don't think we'll be starting a charity in France all that, all that soon. <laughs> um, but I think we have to recognize, you know, for all of us, whatever, whatever culture or country we come from in terms of what our what our role is to support uh, to support Cambodians and um, you know I hope that uh, that that that's well, that's going to be a significant focus for me um, we've already the education team's quite well established Kate's already been able to take a bit of a step back uh, from the day-to-day -day stuff um, which is great and um, you know I, I hope to be involved in development and, and, and education and, and even Cambodia uh, well into the future. Um, and I certainly, certainly don't, we couldn't have possibly afford to retire. Um, so if you've run a charity for 12 plus years, you know, you're not rich. That's, that's <laughs> what we <laughs> guarantee. Um, so pension schemes and all of the kind of Western trappings are something that we don't, we don't really uh, understand so yeah so so perhaps perhaps mark if anybody wants any consulting work we can do a little plug for that in the future yeah future. sounds good but hey, yeah that's the real reality of the situation yeah hey absolutely fantastic to um reconnect and have this conversation thank you for uh taking the time and um i'll you know uh what you've achieved both have achieved is, is incredible and um, big congratulations um, on that and uh, yeah good luck navigating the future thank you mark yeah look and and um, and and very best to you and this is this is a great initiative you know to be able to feel connected to other people who've who've had these sometimes fairly harrowing and traumatic experiences <laughs> running a charity is uh, is really interesting um and it, it helps you feel that you're you're, you're not alone because sometimes leadership can be a bit lonely place to be absolutely yeah yeah thank you cheers mark Thanks for listening to Purposely Podcast. I hope you like what you're hearing. Please subscribe and leave a review.